As you turn again in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, let's pray. Father, we thank you, triune God, for giving your Son, who took our sin upon himself and willingly wore a crown of thorns for our sin he died but by your grace and for your glory he rose again to conquer our sin to defeat death to defeat satan and because of your spirit at work in us we have faith in your son jesus christ and we are restored to you. Help us this morning to see your truth clearly, accurately. Help us to submit to it wholly, completely. May you conform us in spirit and in truth to what you have said is best because it glorifies you most. Amen. When we come to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we backtrack in time slightly to pick up the story at the beginning of severe persecution in Jerusalem. And we find out about God working in another region and with different people. From that persecution at Acts chapter 8, Luke, the author, has already traced the work of Philip in Samaria, and then the conversion of Saul, then back to the ministry of Peter in and around Judea. It was that ministry, too, where we learned of all that was happening concerning Peter and Cornelius, about Gentiles coming to faith and, and the church, primarily Jewish at the time, not being biased against Gentiles, but that they needed to share Christ freely with them because they, too, can be quote, granted repentance that leads to life, Acts chapter 11, verse 18. So now here again at verse 19, we get a sort of a meanwhile. While God was preparing the Jerusalem church to accept Gentile inclusion, God was already at work to plant the first Jew and Gentile blended church made up of Hellenistic Jews and, and a lot of Gentiles. Read with me at Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I love this passage because I love the church. And I love the church because I love the Lord who is its founder and protector, who is the church's head and sole aim. And this passage shows that the existence of local churches is nothing less than God's own work. The local church is nothing less than God's own work. But it also tells us how God has chosen to accomplish that work. So let me put what we see in the pattern at Antioch today in the context first of God accomplishing his purpose. So here's how I've stated this for you. You can see it on the handout. You can see it on the screen. God's purpose is to advance his kingdom as he makes a people for the praise of his glorious name. That kingdom moves forward by the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is accomplished as God establishes and builds up faithful churches. To that end of planting and growing faithful churches, we see in the pattern of the church at Antioch in verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 19 to 26, we see these three things. We see God uses Christ-centered proclamation to plant and grow faithful churches. We see God uses Christ-centered people, and God uses Christ-centered partnerships. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, the reason I keep repeating the term Christ-centered, did you notice that the last thing that we read this morning from this passage was, it was here at Antioch that the disciples were first called, quote, Christians. Although the originators of the term, those who coined it, they may have meant it pejoratively or negatively, But those who bear the name of Jesus would come to wear the term Christian as a badge of truth and a badge of honor. Calling them Christians would mean that these people had clearly marked themselves off as the people who followed Jesus, the Christ. Why would they call them that? Because in everything, these people never cease to speak about and draw attention to the fact that Christ is central to what God has said. Christ is central to everything that God plans to do. The disciples would speak of Christ's coming, that he had had come in the flesh. They would speak of, of what Christ accomplished as we prayed about his cross and his resurrection. They would speak about the ongoing mediation of Jesus Christ until he comes again, all being central to God's word and God's plan. So yeah, these people came to be called Christians not only because it distinguished them from Judaism, but primarily because they were the people who were plainly Christ-centered. So we see from the pattern of of first the birth of the Antioch church that God uses Christ-centered proclamation. This church established at Antioch didn't, didn't occur really because of some grand plan on the part of the Jerusalem church. The Antioch church didn't come about because of a well-executed strategy by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. 
From their side, it was a completely unplanned church plant. But not from God's side. Luke reminds us in verse 19 that this spread of the gospel came about by God allowing the persecution that arose over Stephen. Remember that persecution that arose over Stephen? You can flip back in your Bible if you like to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to just reference verses 1 through 4. It told of a great persecution that arose following Stephen's execution by stoning. And that persecution was due in no small part to the zeal of a young Pharisee named Saul. But Luke clearly indicated the hand of God in this because verse 1 said, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And verse 4 said, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Remember what Jesus told his disciples that becomes the theme or the outline for the book of Acts? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said to them, but you, to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Is that a coincidence? It cannot be a coincidence. God superseded the wicked intentions of the Jewish religious leaders, and he worked this for the good of his people and the progress of his kingdom. Those who proclaimed Christ at Antioch were among the followers of Jesus scattered by persecution. You will be my witnesses. By the power of the Spirit, they were Christ's witnesses, speaking about Jesus being God's revelation for our salvation. Now, because these first verses are, are back again before the events of chapter 10, these people going about in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, they hadn't heard that the Gentiles also were receiving Christ. So most of them were speaking, what did it say? To no one except the Jews. Even though they were spread out as, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. I don't know if you're like me when you hear the New Testament talk about places, I like to get my bearing. So I have a map for you. If it helps, it's kind of distant as always. But if you look at this map, you'll see Phoenicia is the coastal region directly north of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So that section, the red section is Judea and Samaria. Directly north of that in purple is Galilee. Northwest of that is the area of Phoenicia. And its major cities were Tyre and Sidon. And here's another map for you showing that Cyprus is that first island to the west in the Mediterranean. Also, that island was the birthplace of Barnabas. And of course, a bit further north of Israel, you see Antioch. This is the Antioch of Syria, which was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. You may not know that Antioch was a huge metropolis for the time. It was the third largest city in all of the known world, only after Rome and Alexandria. It had as many as half a million people. It was a very pagan city, worshiping many false gods. So it was at Antioch that some of the Jewish believers from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene being a, northern, a kingdom in northern Africa to the west of Egypt, they spoke to the Greeks also. So this word Hellenists, Hellenistes in Greek, is used three different ways in Acts, depending on the context. We, we heard in Acts chapter 9 that Hellenists referred to Greek-speaking Jews. In 
chapter, back in chapter 6, it referred to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. And then here, it can also refer to Greek-speaking Gentiles. So now, yes, the context of what the, these people say is, quote, preaching or proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, evangelizing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's at the end of verse 20. But I want you to notice something. Two times in here, the verb that is mentioned before this is the simple word for talking, for speech, laleo, verses 19 and 20. What an encouragement this should be to us. Here we have simple people simply speaking God's truth about Christ. You don't have to be as powerful in proclamation as George Whitfield whose voice apparently could, could not only be heard by thousands, but whom God used to transform thousands in submission to Jesus Christ. You don't have to be George Whitfield. You just have to speak about Jesus. You do not have to be as eloquent in presentation as Charles Spurgeon, who is probably my favorite preacher because his preaching dripped with poignant metaphors. He didn't have to use illustrations because he could use that illustration in a single sentence. You don't have to be as eloquent as Charles Spurgeon. You only need to speak what God has said about Christ in his word. These nameless saints then should be our heroes. Faithfulness to Christ is the goal not thousands of listeners. We let God handle that. We faithfully talk about Jesus because he is our Lord. And what's the result of simple faithfulness to Christ? Simple speaking to others about the gospel of Jesus? Verse 21 says it. And the hand of the Lord was with them. This is God's blessing upon them. God doing his work because they were speaking, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with those who spoke to the Greeks. God did the work, but he did so through the faithful proclamation of these saints. And a great many believed, and synonymous with that believing is that these Gentiles turned to the Lord. Believing in Jesus is the same as saying that we are spiritually transformed so that the way we were going is no longer the way we are heading, such that we no longer pursue our sin or elevate ourselves as our own masters, but that we have turned wholly to Jesus. He is Lord of all. So we begin the process of moving from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. So what have we seen so far? If you've been with us in our study of Luke-Acts, you might remember us saying earlier in the, the book of Acts that persecution doesn't thwart God's purpose or God's plan or his power. Because God is providentially at work, persecution is most likely to bring about God's purpose. Therefore, we remain steadfastly faithful to our Lord, knowing that he is always working to achieve his purpose. But what we're seeing is that God is yet achieving his purpose through his people. How? By speaking the word 
of Christ through Christ-centered proclamation. Are you speaking the word of the Lord? What's the single most exciting thing that you have to talk about? What's the most important thing in your life? That's what you're overflowing that you want to tell people about, right? Jim Gar likes to talk about the fact that when we're really enthralled with something, that we're, when we're really excited about something, we gush. If you ask me what I think of Steph Curry and if I'm being honest about my man crush, if I'm being honest, I will gush about Steph Curry. Have you watched the guy play basketball? It's insane. It's a video game. How does he do that? If you ask me what I care about most, do I gush about Jesus? If you cut me, if you harm me, if you persecute me, do I bleed grace? Isn't evangelism speaking to unbelievers about Christ, every member's privilege, every Christian's responsibility? Again, they were speaking, normal Greek word for talking. And the, the term Christian literally came because they were the people known for talking always about Christ. So God uses Christ-centered proclamation to bring people to saving faith and to grow them in Christ. We see, too, from the pattern of the Antioch church in its consolidation and in its growth that God uses Christ-centered people. Referring briefly back to the first witnesses that we were just talking about, these are people who have been displaced by persecution they're, they're completely displaced from their homes, and yet somehow they're so grounded, they're so secure, they're so centered, because their life is now centered in Christ. Jesus is not Lord only in Jerusalem. Jesus is not Lord only of the Jews. Jesus is Lord of all people in every place and in all situations. Under this knowledge, they and we can trust him and promote him always. These unnamed heroes have become Christ-centered people. Above all else, they bear the name of Christ. They are Christians. So too, we see particularly emphasized with Barnabas in this next section that God uses Christ-centered people. And with Barnabas, we're seeing God uses Christ-centered people to lead and to minister in faithful churches people who aim to produce other Christ-like people, which equals discipleship, aiming to produce other Christ-like people. In verse 22, we, we saw that the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas because he was a man of trusted character. You don't send just anybody on this kind of errand. When the church heard of gospel proclamation just a little bit before this in Samaria, it was the apostles Peter and John who went. So it's no small thing that now the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas, who must be a man of proven character. It reminds me of Paul telling the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 21 to 23. It reminds me of Paul telling them that even though 
he personally couldn't go to be with them at that time because he was under house arrest, he confidently sends to them Timothy as his representative because even they know of Timothy's proven worth. That Timothy doesn't focus on himself, but Timothy focuses on Christ. Not self-centered, but Christ-centered. Barnabas, like Timothy, is a Christ-centered man of proven character. In fact, what does the text say about Barnabas, the man, in chapter 20, or in verse 24a? For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That Barnabas is a good man, Agathos, means simply that he has he, he, good, he has desirable qualities. So when I think of Barnabas's character, and maybe you can think of other things, listen carefully though to my list. When I think of Barnabas's character, I think of things like humility. I think of faithfulness. I think of compassion. Sincerity, honesty. We want to be people like Barnabas who are encouraging, people who are generous, people who are passionate, people who are patient. I'm convinced that this knee thing is God growing me in patience. <laughs> we want to be people who are kind, loving, gentle, people who are deferential, preferring others, people who are submissive. That's what I think of when I think of Barnabas. You've heard me say before that people like Barnabas and Jonathan, in God's word, are my heroes. The people who willingly elevate someone else. We'll come back to that when we talk about partnership between Barnabas and Saul. We hear that Barnabas is full of the Spirit, meaning he's submissive to and he's controlled by the Spirit as a regular demeanor of his life. And he's, he's full of faith. He's full of trust in God. How does a Christ-centered man respond to God at work? And what does a Christ-centered man do? Well, that was in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was, he was glad, rejoicing. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He recognizes the grace of God and he rejoices in it. And his aim is to produce other Christ-like people. This is discipleship. Barnabas was training them that, that what should matter most to us as individuals is character before God. Remain steadfast to the Lord, or remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, character before God, relationship with, and faithfulness to God is our priority. He builds them up to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, that they too should be Christ-centered in all things. In Christian training, then, we aim to see a person grow in character, in conviction, and in competence. But it is character which forms the pyramid's foundation. Character forms the pyramid's foundation. Convictions of God's truth are built on Christ-like character. 
Competence then flows through both of these to manifest Christ-like character and biblically sound convictions into competence in specific ministries. But there's no value in us honing skills if we don't have character. Desiring to be like Christ. There's no value in strong convictions if those convictions aren't grounded in being like Christ. I know you guys have heard me say this before, but the single most important thing that God has taught me through the mentorship of Rich and Patty Tolliver in our lives is this. Character before God first and above all things. Nothing else that we might try to do for him matters unless our heart is wholly his. What is the result then of being faithful? A faithful man recognizing the hand of the Lord and and committing himself to encouraging and training others to be like Christ? The second half of verse 24 says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. People were already coming in faith to Jesus and as Barnabas builds them up, more people come in faith to Jesus. So we've seen that God uses Christ-centered proclamation to plant and grow faithful churches, and he uses Christ-centered people to start and to sustain faithful churches. So now let's see from the pattern at Antioch, from the cooperation between individuals and the church communities, that God uses Christ-centered partnerships. We see a partnership clearly forming between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. Antioch being uh, quite a ways north, and it would have taken some time for Barnabas to get to them. It would always take time for news to travel back and forth, and yet we see them beginning to work together. The church plan at Antioch was initiated, again, we said, completely apart from the planning of the Jerusalem church, but because of what they heard, they did come alongside to offer both confirmation and guidance through Barnabas. Not only that, but later, the connection between the two communities, which we're going to see in verses 27 to 30, we don't have a lot of time to spend there today, uh, but we'll look at it next week. We also will see there that the the connection between the two communities of believers has developed to the point where, where some from Jerusalem with the gift of prophecy come down to them. And then when the Christians hear about the famine that will, will strike the whole region because Agabus tells them, the, the church at Antioch chooses to send financial assistance because they're a more affluent church than the church in Jerusalem to aid that other church. That Christ-centered partnership between these churches will prove so important in the future in such things as, as the Jerusalem leaders being supportive of Antioch's missionary endeavors. In the book of Acts, we now have a, a kind of shift from Jerusalem being the primary conversation, the Jerusalem church, to now being the Antioch church and its sending as the primary conversation. But the Jerusalem church leaders are supportive of these missionary endeavors. And then also when the Antioch church, through Paul, provides accountability to the Jerusalem church when they are caught still playing favorites toward Jewish Christians. 
But in the text here, there's another more personal partnership which Barnabas initiates that launches a long-lasting and incredibly impactful partnership between Saul and Barnabas. That relationship won't be without its hiccups, but this partnership proves wonderfully beneficial to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Barnabas evidently surveys the situation in Antioch, and he remembers Saul. He thinks to himself, you know who would be an amazing help to this ministry? Do you know which Hellenistic Jew came to Christ who would be an amazing help here in Antioch? Saul. And so he travels what we think is more than 100 miles to go get Saul and bring him back to Antioch. I'm admitting that it's a bit speculative because the text doesn't say, but I'm guessing that Barnabas had been in contact with Saul during the the many years-long gap that Saul has been maturing and and in ministry in the region of his, his birth home, Tarsus. I bet there's been some kind of letter communication between these men. So at Antioch, the two begin teaching side by side for a whole year. And Barnabas is pouring into Saul, encouraging his ministry like a big brother in the Lord. Barnabas does not seem concerned at all that Saul might outshine him. He probably prays for it. That's a Christ-centered approach to ministry partnership. When I pray for the younger men around me, I pray that they will be of greater Christ-like character and of greater faithfulness. I pray that they will be of greater conviction and greater gifting. And I have no doubt that there are men who have mentored me and have prayed the same. We are not concerned that someone else might outshine us. We pray for it. We don't feel threatened by partnerships because the aim is Christ, not recognition for ourselves. And what an amazing burden is lifted from people. Just let me tell you this. If you're not sure that you should come to faith in Jesus Christ, you carry such a heavy burden on yourself of your own sin, of trying to be good enough to be right with God. What a heavy burden you bear. Do you want real rest? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will take the burden off of you and I have borne it on myself and I will give you my righteousness and I will lead you beside me to the promised land. What a burden is lifted off of us. And Christians, when we live like that, we know that we have rest in Christ-centeredness. We have motivation and conviction. We have courage. And so when I'm self-centered and whining and I'm grumpy about my knee never getting better, I try to rest it by being on crutches and it doesn't help me sleep any better. And I'm a big baby about the way I sleep. And then God uses this text in my life again this week to remind me, Jeff, that's so petty. So petty. God removes my self-centeredness and gives me his purpose. So Christ-centered partnerships realize that if, if Christ is magnified, everybody wins. 
That's why we're here. That's our purpose, for Christ to be magnified. And what's the result? At Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The Antioch church became known for proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior. They were known as followers of Christ. Branson Bible Church and those visiting with us today, are we living up to the name Christian? Christ-centered people of Christ-centered proclamation who form Christ-centered partnerships so that Christ is promoted. That's what we learn from God's church plant in Antioch. Christians, followers and proclaimers of Jesus is who we are and what we do. The church that God plants and grows is Christ-centered. The Antioch church was Christ-centered in its inception and remained Christ-centered in its growth and purpose in no small part to the leadership of Barnabas and Saul. And there will be other ways in which the Antioch church will serve as a model church. They'll prove to be a church of doctrinal conviction. Remember we said when they even helped the Jerusalem church. And they will emerge as the church with disciple-making vision in reaching the Gentiles for Christ. They will be a sending church. For now, though, let's focus on what we've seen in the text today, which first reminded us that God is working beyond our ability to plan. Not that we shouldn't have plans, not that we shouldn't strategize. We may lay plans, but we let the Lord lead. Proverbs 19, 21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Whose purpose are you aiming for? That means that in many ways we must continue to be in our, in our partnerships, in the people that are working together as we are proclaiming Christ. We have to continue to be flexible, adaptable, blending, accommodating, understanding, conceding, adjusting, even compromising. You know, in our conservative Christian circles, we're scared to death of the word compromise. We just assume it's pejorative. I compromise all the time <laughs> with fellow Christians. Because all of these can and must be done without shifting foundations, without unsettling our standing, without losing focus on Christ. Even programs and strategies need to stay in their place. Programs and plans must be servants to their purpose for existing, servants to the people for whom they exist, and servants to the people who lead them. So the church that desires God's blessing is one that is not searching for gimmicks, but simply, simply doing God, things God's way. And what is that way? When God plants a church, his intention is that it be grounded in gospel preaching, that it be running on godly people who are partnering together to evangelize and build up the church. Whatever plans we make, whatever programs we might have, our strategy needs to be centered on Christ. So church, let's evaluate again our, our gatherings. Let's evaluate again our ministries. Let's evaluate again our visions for our households and for our personal lives. That they be Christ-centered. And as we work together in the local church and with others, let's allow Christ-centeredness to unify us so that preferences and personalities and politics will fall away and we'll be left with just Jesus. Again, 
Ask yourself today, according to Christ-centeredness, is my life spiritually healthy? Is our church healthy? Not is our church big? Is our church influential and powerful? Is our church happening? Is our church noteworthy? No, is our church faithful and healthy? Is my life faithful and healthy? Am I Christ-centered? Are we being faithful to Christ? Just so Barnabas would charge us to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. As a church then, our aim is that in everything the Lord Jesus Christ might be preeminent, Colossians 1.18. We are his, him we proclaim. It doesn't just say that on our website, we believe it. That ought not just be a slogan from Colossians 1.28, but it should be our actual vision, our actual purpose to be Christ-centered people, partnering together to proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 say this, and this is where we'll end. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what God has done and what God is doing through Jesus. And we're simply learning to get on board with the Christ-centered mission of Christ's own church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that by the conviction of your Holy Spirit in our lives, you would take away our self-centeredness and make us centered on your Son who was your gift to us and is our Lord, who took that crown of thorns and then you replaced it with a crown of majesty, of eternal glory. And he is seated right where he deserves. God, may you help him to be seated where he deserves in our hearts and in our lives. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.